working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm bringing you part two of my talk with Atlanta-based drummer, singer, and band leader Ganesh Girijaya. Ganesh is a 25-year veteran of the Atlanta scene, drumming and singing in primarily cover and tribute projects. He is currently the drummer, lead singer, and band leader for Yacht Rock Schooner. We covered a bunch in part one, including what keeps him busy lately, his drumming and singing influences, and the spiritual aspects of his yoga practice. But there was a lot about his story and experience that we didn't get to, so I asked him back to talk about the physical aspects of yoga as it relates to drumming, growing up in New Orleans, studying at Musicians Institute and living on the West Coast, and his seven-year tenure as a copy editor for Drumhead Magazine. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net, where you can check out past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. Please follow us on social media, share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and help us out by leaving a rating and review there. We'd also like to encourage you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash working drummer if you'd like to contribute a little money each month to help keep the podcast going strong. There's some great incentives there for donations at any level, including t-shirts, stickers, access to bonus content, a free lesson with one of our past guests such as Ben Caesar or Carter McLean, or the chance to be interviewed on an episode of Working Drummer. You can donate as much or as little as you see fit, starting at $1 a month, and every donation at any level is greatly appreciated. If you're interested in Working Drummer Podcast t-shirts for yourself or the other drummers in your life, now is the time. We're blowing them out for 10 bucks each or 3 for 20 You can place your order at workingdrummer.net. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say, on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45, and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that and then the uh, batter side can be a little bit sharper just so you get that nice snap out of the kick but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone you can also find a link to the new sublime birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer in the near future we've got much more to share in regard to crush drums in this dynamic company for now check out crush drums at crushdrum.com So now, please enjoy Ganesh Girijaya, part two. In the last session, we talked about, um, you know, your your yoga practice and, and your spiritual practice and how it's 
um, affected your emotional well-being and the psychological game of music and, and etc. Um, what we didn't get to that I want to hear about is is the physical game and how your yoga practice uh, plays into into playing drums. Okay. Um, God, you know, well, okay, so I'm 47, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think that I would probably be, you know, just be in a lot, of, a lot different place if I hadn't been doing yoga. Yeah. So, like, physically being able to handle the demands of playing all the time, you know, it makes a big difference. Um, the flexibility, you know, just kind of keeping things moving, right. uh, getting around the kit and stuff. And, you know, I've noticed... And I'm sure you have too. Like a lot of these kind of up and comers are like these buffed out dudes. Man. Yeah. You know, like um, what's his name? Ronald Bruner Jr. Yeah. That guy's a beast. Or like Tony Royster. You know, Thomas Pridgen. Right. <laughs> yeah. Those guys are built out, hitting the gym. Alex Rudinger, a couple right. of hours in the gym all the time, and they they can all really play. Mm-hmm. And you know, playing a lot and heavy like that is takes a lot of physical stamina. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you don't. If you don't have it, so like the, it, it kind of plays into the same, a little bit into the same well. But yoga for me also was a big, uh, huge boost in proprioception. You know, your body's ability to kind of like, it, you know what that means. I've never heard that word. Say it again. Proprioception. So it's like your uh, your hand eye coordination or your uh, your uh, sense of where your body is in yeah, space yeah, and yeah. where your extremities are in space. Uh-huh. You know, so, um, like, I was always a real spaz. <laughs> you know, like, never really had a ton of athletic game. Like, I could run. I played basketball a little bit. But mainly it was because I got taller faster than some of my other kids. Mm-hmm. You know, and then once, you know, I got into the Biddy League in New Orleans. And, you know, just getting beat all the time. <laughs> so, but when I started doing yoga, I probably picked it up when I was about... 30 or maybe 29 mm-hmm. and uh, it just like it changed everything so like now like you know I still kind of discover like things that I would historically as a kid that I sucked at mm-hmm. like throwing a football or like really just things like like hitting a target with a projectile like throwing something yeah like and then you know I throw and Bam! Like I, I'm just like holy shit, you know. Like, and it's not like I'm like superhuman or anything, but like it, I definitely noticed a massive like different level of game on right. that sort of thing. And it kind of comes back into the the yoga practice. Um, you know, like if you've never done it, the first few times you do it, like your body is kind of overwhelmed with sensations of like muscles you didn't know you were had. Oh yeah, you know, like it's, yeah. And so you kind of like that never really stops, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it kind of goes through different phases. So like, you know, I'm, how many down dogs have I done? Right. Like once I did down dog for 30 minutes on national TV and you know, like on a CNN segment, it you was, just held down dog for 30 minutes. Yeah. I didn't, uh, I was as a demonstrator from one of my, from my teacher, Swami Jai Dave. Oh, okay. And, uh, and, but they like, while I had a mic, I didn't have an earpiece and they had like ceased talking to me or about me. And so, and I couldn't see them. 
So I was just holding the pose. And they're like, you know, they had cut to Swami and like they're doing a close up and she's talking and stuff. And I'm just sitting there holding down dog. And they like, uh, you know, my friends were telling me later on, they're just like, wow, you still holding down dog. You know, I'm just <laughs> like <laughs> shaking it out. So, but like you'd think a pose that you do, you know, done that often. Yeah. Like I still find new stuff in it every single time I do it. Yeah. You know, so yeah. you're kind of getting into. Uh, and it just makes me more aware of like what's going on in my body when I'm using those things. Yeah, I um I I came to yoga in grad school because the our percussion professor kind of made he didn't make us do it, but he he had a, he had the whole percussion studio do yoga together once a week, and he hired a teacher and brought her in. And one of the first lessons that we learned about yoga and about your body is that your body is different every day. And I mean, it's it's a basic principle in yoga, like a, a pose that you nailed yesterday, you might not be able to nail today because your balance is different, your muscles are different, it's it's whatever. Your head is different. Totally, yeah. And so I've I've thought about that in drumming so much, um, just really being aware of what your body wants to do today and what it doesn't want to do, um, and you know whether whether the risk you're running is injuring yourself or sounding like shit or both. I think your body can tell you a lot about, about, you know, what's going to be good today. <laughs> totally. It's like, and one way to take away a huge lesson after a tiny bit of exposure. I don't know if you keep doing it. Yeah. 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 I, I, I wish I need to do it more often um, because I've been having back trouble and like I, I need to, I should probably just talk with you after this interview and, and get into your class and, and come see me. I'll get take it, care of get you. it done. Um, so yeah, I've done it. I've done it intermittently. Um, and you know, I, I don't, I don't always, I'm, I don't always enjoy it completely when I'm in the middle of it, but I, I'm never sorry I did it, you yeah. know? Um, so, so yeah, just that, that body awareness was one of the first things I, I learned about it. And, but um, like that kind of going day to day or like minute to minute, like, um, playing, it's like playing to your strengths on the micro level. Right. You know, so it's like, you know, you like kind of reorient your career and stuff, you know, at one point, I guess all of us do this where you kind of like, okay, this is stuff that is, I'm kind of good at. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's better to kind of go with this flow instead of go against it. Yep. You know, but then you can do that on, you know, it's macro and then you do this on the micro like right. day to day. Right. You know, and my, uh, my guru had this saying and I thought it was amazing. It's like one minute you're it. Next minute, your shit. And what changed? Your mind. Yeah. You know, it's just like how, how quick you can just go with it. So mm -hmm. it's really cool. Yeah. Um, what, um, what physical challenge, what are, the, what are the most common physical challenges you face drumming? Like, especially as you're getting older. Is there stuff that keeps coming up physically that... I wish I had better mobility around the kit. And I think this is more due to the way that I was trained or like my personal history as a musician, Yeah, you know, um, uh, like mobility around the kit, you know, and I had the same thing that everybody does, you know, it's like, you see those old pictures of like, uh, Vinny and, uh, Steve Smith and they're, you know, they're sitting like on a, milk crate right and symbols <laughs> way up high and they're you know really reaching up and then now you see all those guys and they're sitting up super high symbols are low or mm -hmm. even canted over mm -hmm. because you know like after a while your shoulders are like you know you just it seems like you you spend a lot of if you don't do a ton of training just to maintain 
that part of your body, it's a wasted effort. And those guys are just like, they're playing, you know, and they're playing on a high level anyway. So it'd be like for them to do a bunch of extra physical conditioning and it doesn't really help their playing, you know, it's just like they eventually you just kind of get to that thing where you start lowering stuff down. Yeah. So, you know, like there's all the stuff that happens to other cats as they get older stuff starts getting lower and you just, your seat starts getting higher uh-huh. and stuff. And, but just trying to kind of like get a handle on again, like what, what my body wants to do with the kid. And, um, I remember like having a period of time when I auditioned for this, um, this prog rock band and they, there was like the all the, the audition material had a ton of double bass in it. Yeah. And I was kind of basically a beginner at double bass, you know. And uh, so I like went into this audition with like weeks and weeks of shedding. And I got like I got a callback. So the, but I was a couple of weeks between the original audition and a callback. And so I did a ton of shedding and like threw my back out like mm. crazy. Yeah. You know, and I was just like so that was a huge lesson there. And I actually talked to. Um, now um he's a drummer he lives in nashville and uh he's in uh he was in a van halen tribute band Hmm. um and i think he got another like he got a really amazing big gig but he's peter stroud's nephew and he um they were like i'm sure matt knows him he might have been on the podcast for all i know right and sweet guy and just a blazing drummer yeah and um you know, so I asked him, I was like, dude, I just threw my back out. Like, how do you, you know, his double bass chops were killing, you know. And so he gave me a bunch of pointers, like seat height and stuff. And mm-hmm. just trying to get it out of the hip flexors, get yeah. it more, like get it below the knee. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's make that, let the ankle do the work. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the hips, man. I like in, I, I would say my back is, is my biggest liability in terms of, uh, you know, drumming and pain and fatigue and all that. But, but as I'm getting older, like the hips are tightening up too. Well, and that's, what's contributing to the back problem, right? You know, it comes from downhill. And so like just getting an eye on that stuff and knowing, okay, already I'm coming into it with like tight hip flexors, tight psoas, but then also like everybody in America has tight hips and hamstrings so Mm -hmm. like outer hips and stuff so like just knowing that okay i've got to deal with that stuff yeah so if i'm going into a show where i'm like i don't want to have to kind of like fight to get warmed up yeah you know you do your hands and stuff but then kind of like get some blood flowing and moving the hips around a little bit get the hamstrings moving so you don't have to you know like waste a couple of songs getting that shit together right you know but then some other things like little tricks like did you ever read tim ferris's book uh four hour body no it's an interesting uh like a hacker's manual for the human body wow i think it's definitely a must own for everybody you know and like even if you're like not into a lot of it but when there's one section called hacking the nfl combine (laughs) and so he goes in and you know and just like kind of uh, goes to the NFL combine like during um, draft week and yeah. you know is asking all these trainers about stuff and things and one of the things he would they did was like um, they were doing a 40 yard dash and um, you know like little things like okay you know where you have your stance you know yeah. when you take off can take a couple of seconds off your time but also like one of the things that he did was um like hyperclocking your nervous system. So like jumping for height 
for like, I don't know, like an interval of like 30 to 100 seconds or something like that. So mm-hmm. you're like jumping as high as you can, like hyperclocks your nervous system and then added like, like took all this time off his 40 yard dash or like added some pounds to his bench press. Yeah. You know, like, wow. so you're kind of like, and I like, I was, when I was, I got that gig with the prog band. And so when then we were in the studio right after I read that book, and so I'm going in, like, doing these tracks, you know, and it's like a lot of them are sketched out. I didn't really know exactly what I'm playing, like, going into it. Yeah. You know, and they're like, okay, can you do this here? And can you do this here? And I'm like, okay. And so, like, I'm going in, and a lot of it's, like, real real noty and, like, very choppy and stuff. So I'm, like, doing all these jumps in the studio. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm hyperclocking my nervous system. <laughs> Make sure I can nail this. What, you, you guys don't do this too? You gotta come on, everybody. <laughs> they all got into it. <laughs> oh man. So so for for drummers and musicians in general who have never done yoga, do like do you just recommend like finding a beginning class in your neighborhood somewhere or, or should it be more specific than that? No, I think finding a beginner like, you know, because it's so pervasive these days, like yeah. you know, even a yoga class at your gym, right, you know, might be cool. You know, because it really just depends on how well you vibe with the teacher. I was gonna say, I've I've taken a bunch of different yoga classes and, and sometimes you're in the middle of it and the teacher has just got you in the palm of their hands and everything feels great. Uh, but sometimes it's like, you know, their pacing of the poses or the tone of their voice or the weird terminology they use. And it just kind of takes you out of, you know, whatever you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, when they make it about them, <laughs> you know, it's just like, that's the whole thing. I yeah. think it like, I think that's really the most important thing is to find a teacher that you feel comfortable with and that appears to know what they're doing mm-hmm. and they don't, you know, like a good teacher is, um, they're not going to be rigid minded Mm -hmm. so they're not going to tell you that nobody else is doing it right Mm. you know so right yeah i've I've had that happen where a teacher will be like now other teachers may say that you should do it this way but when you do it my way then blah 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 it's you know and at that point if you're not getting hurt from that teacher you're you're lucky you know (laughs) because like when you everybody's different it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of vibe right you know and a lot of people can kind of some of the even the yoga philosophies from the the physical practice standpoint um have some really rigid guidelines about alignment and things like that yeah and it just doesn't work like that for everybody's body right everybody's body is different so you know you gotta there's some real general principles that if you can like get a, a good understanding of that then they'll, you know, they can kind of like just tailor the practice for you. Yeah. I, I The more I hear about it, the more I realize I got really spoiled with the first yoga teacher that we had in, in that studio. I don't remember her name. It was in Kansas City. She was so great. She she just taught us these, you know, these basic principles that we're talking about. Um, and, and one of them was, if what I'm telling you to do hurts, then find a way that it doesn't hurt. Like you don't have to do this position exactly how I'm doing it. You know, the, the benefits of these poses aren't dependent on uniformity. Um, and that's uh, brilliant. Yeah, that's exactly it. Before we get too far into anything else, I, I want to go to to the back because you grew up in New Orleans and you came from there, mm-hmm. and I've I'm I'm fascinated with New Orleans from a musical standpoint, and a culinary standpoint, and a historical standpoint, and everything else. We've inter- interviewed a few drummers from New Orleans on the podcast, um, but what, I mean, what was it like 
growing up there and how long did you spend there? Let's see, I was born there in 1970 and uh, moved to Atlanta in uh, 1986. Okay. So, you know, like all through junior high and yeah. a little bit of high school in there and started playing in, uh, I think I started playing music when I was in like fourth grade. Okay. So about eight years old. Uh, I was like, oh, I can get out of class. <laughs> Let me take up an instrument. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I, I took up the trumpet and played the trumpet for about 10 years. Uh, and I even like I brought that to Atlanta with me and um, I always wanted to be a drummer. But you know, my dad was really sick and they just didn't, you know, my mom and dad were like, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> so I uh, said so I played trumpet and, you know, we marched in the marching band and mm -hmm. stuff. And marching in the marching band in New Orleans is uh, kind of a, a, a different vibe. You know, you do Mardi Gras. Right. It's not year. really marching band. It's like street band kind of, isn't it? Well, it's like marching band plus. Right. <laughs> You know, because you still do all the same shit. You play football games, right. you, know, you play pep rallies and stuff. Yeah. But then um, you also, like, for two or three weeks out of the year, you march for 10 miles every night. Man. You know, in whatever weather is happening. Right. Because people don't care. They're Mardi Gras. They're out there. They're going to be there. Right. You know, and so we were, you know, and in the 70s and the early 80s, like, even back then, the drinking age in New Orleans was still 18. Uh -huh. You know, until, like, the federal government put the screws to them and said, okay, we're going to stop funding the interstate if you guys don't raise drinking age to 21. <laughs> And, uh, and even then, like, they uh, grandfathered everybody in, right, you know, right, for right. another five years. <laughs> and so when I was 13 or 12, like, I looked 18. So I would literally, like, ride my bike to the liquor store. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was terrible. But anyway. <laughs> Taking so, your Hot Wheels down the street to the... <laughs> yeah. It was, you know, we just kind of partied all the time. Yeah. It was, yeah. It, it was really fun. And it was... Uh, you know, it's like yeah, everybody's childhood, you know, if it wasn't super miserable, it has this kind of glow about it. Yeah. You know? And even though, like, there was some stuff going on in our family that was, you know, tough to deal with, at the same time, you know, I had some good friends and some good music teachers. And I think, I really think that playing, uh, playing the trumpet for that long made me a musician mm -hmm. instead of, like, so, when, for instance... I had people telling me when I was, you know, seven or eight years old, nine years old, that I could not sing and that I should never really try, mm -hmm. you know. And so then I played trumpet for a few years and uh, and went on to be, uh, you know, I was in the honor band a few times in, in Louisiana. And when I got to and I always wanted to play drums. And after my dad died when I was a kid. Um, I, you know, begged my mom until she was finally like, shut up. And she bought me a drum set and I just like banged to records in the, in the garage mm -hmm. forever and ever and still play trumpet the whole time. But like, I found that like playing a, a pitched instrument like that, particularly something that's as sensitive to like intonation as a brass instrument, yeah. you know, it's like, uh, then my ear became sensitive, you know, mm -hmm. so like you're learning, you know, like there was no digital tuners back then, you know, yeah. like you, you might be lucky if somebody had a brat, you know, a stroke tuner, but really it'd be like somebody hit a tuning fork or play a note on a piano and the class has to tune to that. Right. You know, right. and so you would learn how to tune your own instrument and mm -hmm. that made you more sensitive to intonation. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, when I was in undergrad um, at Ball State, our, our professor, Dr. Mueller, like he, he would, he would have a whole semester course on like timpani, like he would spend a semester on timpani with him and for for students who were having trouble like learning intonation on timpani and learning how to change pitches on the pedals and all that stuff he would have them go take some lessons with the upright bass professor 
just to get that range of pitch like in their ear and in their head. Um, and you know, just that kind of cross discipline really helped with, uh, with being able to tune timpani. Probably. Wow. That's, it's really hard to do that. Yeah. It's, oh, I, I, those guys, <laughs> I, I did it for a long time, man. man. God bless you. That, <laughs> I don't think I could even do that. You know, it's, and so I think the, you know, that made a big difference, you know, later on down the road, but I, and the things I didn't get was like, you know, marching band hand chops. Right. You know, and still trying to catch up on that stuff. Yeah, me too. Me too. I recently, um, uh, like, I started playing traditional grip because of marching band in high school. Because, like, I, you know, I started out with my drum teacher when I was eight playing matched. And I got to high school and, and they were like, well, you know, if you want to be in marching band, you got to learn traditional grip. Um, so I learned it and then I started playing jazz. Um, and I... I had a realization like six months ago that I, I never really took the time to properly learn and develop my traditional grip and that it was becoming a liability. Um, and I would always switch back and forth. Like I would play some jazz gigs traditional and then play the rock gigs matched. And, and on the jazz gigs, I found myself like wanting to do stuff that my left hand traditional grip could not do. But I was I was married to it from an aesthetic standpoint. Like this is a jazz gig. Jazz it feels cool. It feels cool. Yeah. Like it, it's, there's definitely a feel thing. So like I'm I'm having to develop my matched grip swing and shuffle feel. Um, but uh, I'm I'm with you on the still trying to catch up with the hand chops because I like I realized if I'm going to keep traditional grip, I'm going to have to tear it down and just start from square one and and rebuild it completely. Um, and I'm not interested mm. in doing that. Yeah, so. like, I'll see you in 10 years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did a lot of traditional grip in college at MI, <laughs> and you know, like because there was a couple of cats there that could just blow, and I was like, I want to do that. Right. And you know, like I got it to the point where I could make it work, but um, and then you know, I just let it go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and really, um, my wrist doesn't make that motion right. Mm-hmm. You know, so and it would be a lot of training, a lot of uphill to get. You know, but even though like. You know, if I'm playing like a low volume swing, I don't really do swing gigs, but like right. if I'm on a low volume gig like that and we're playing something kind of swingy, you know, you'll see me, I'll, t- I'll flip it over. And as soon as I like want to get a little bit busy, I'm going to flip that back over. Right. I mean, honestly, I just really like got my left hand fulcrum reset, you know, a couple of years ago. Really? Yeah. It was like, I was just having all these problems and I had been like really shedding hard for many, many years. Like I started um, after I got out of that. Well, I was you know a few years in the metalsome gig, and I did a camp with Sonny Emery, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like really excited to do that, and I did a lot of work with him, and, and I had just been shedding forever, and then like kind of hit a wall, you know. So the years go by, and I, I kind of hit a wall with this thing, and I took a lesson with uh, Brandon Kunka, local guy. Yeah, I know Brandon. Yeah, great, and and he was uh, you know and like. The one thing I took from that lesson, you know, he was like, well, it looks like your your fulcrum in your left hand isn't really working that well. I was like, okay. And then, you know, I just kind of took that to heart and started working on it. I spent a couple of years on it, and it's finally, like, starting to come together. What what did you have to change? It just, like, it wasn't established. Mm. You know, it was like, and so I started, you know, asking around and stuff. I don't know if you know Daniel Morrison. Yeah. He's a great dude. Yeah, yeah. And so I worked with him in Schooner for many years. Right. And he and I used to get together and play a lot. Mm-hmm. And he has ridiculous hands. Yeah. And he was, um, I was like, dude, what did you guys do, you know, for hands and stuff? And he showed me a couple of things. And, you know, he's got, uh, you know, 
uh, like a couple of like just you know you would never use it on a gig but like so i, I would you know do my my warm-ups i would i've been using the like tommy igo's method for uh-huh. a while and but i would play them you know just with just fulcrum so all the fingers off the stick yeah it sounds like crap right but uh you know like by the time you get you know i would play it down it's like a 10 minute warm-up you know and i get down and like i could make it sound okay like a long roll sound okay by the end and then go back and play it back you know, with a regular grip and it's just like night and day. Wow. You know, so getting stuff like that, but also realizing like that, like just opened up so many doors for me and like kind of seeing that, you know, your hands, like you use different grips for different tempos, for different things. It's like, you know, like really just kind of like grokking fully in fullness, you know, like how, like how many different grips you have to have yeah. just to operate, just right. to get out there and make some money, mm-hmm. you know, and you yeah, gotta yeah. like have it all happening. And, you know, like that kind of like fundamental snare drum work, you know, I was always like really envious of some cats that I could see that just have that touch. You mm-hmm. know, it's like Justin Chisarek. Dude, I was about to bring him up because I was talking with him about the matched versus traditional thing. And he did the same thing. I don't know if he ever played traditional, but he, you know, he's as, as good a jazz drummer as there is playing matched grip. And I was talking with him. I was like, I, I think I'm still going to play brushes traditional though. And he was like, why? Screw that. He, like he challenged me. He was like, if you're going to go all in, like play the brushes too, man. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd like, I got to get with him and just do have a, have a brush session with him because my, my matched grip brushes are, are, suffering (laughs) my brushes are suffering (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i think we all we all are to an extent um so to like to what extent does does your new orleans uh uh you know origins still factor into your your music or how you approach it i don't know i think it's more of like a um like a feel thing you know Mm -hmm. like um the more the older i get the more you know because like you kind of like like when they would ask, like, not that I'm comparing myself in any way, but they'd ask like Da Vinci, like, how do you sculpt a lion? And he's like, well, you see this piece of clay here? And you, then you cut away the parts that don't look like a lion. Right. You know, and, <laughs> you know, so it was kind of like after a while, you know, you kind of get to the point where you, uh, you realize the threads that kind of run through like everything that you've played, yeah. you know, so you, you're able to kind of look back on such as it is your own body of work mm-hmm. and, uh, and realize the things that have always been there. Yeah. You know, and for me, like, you know, like I, it, it is, there's always been this kind of tendency to, um, like pull back a little bit, like, keep a little bit of a swampier type of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that, you know, even when I try to get rid of it, sometimes it won't go away, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think that's really cool, but I, I think that there was a lot of that sort of thing. And I think though, it also comes from like the street beats kind of vibe where, you know, you're marching for, you know, like to do a parade that long, you know, for 10 miles, you know, it would take like three, four hours. Yeah. And, you know, you just, playing to cadences right you know whole time playing music playing to cadences and stuff and you know like you know when you do it that long like i could play almost all the marching cadences that the drummers in our bands played because mm-hmm. you know just by ear that right. you'd heard them so many times and i think like that sort of thing and um but also like the you know like new orleans is like infused with music mm-hmm. like people call nashville music city 
but New Orleans is music city to me. Yeah. You know, not the, none the way from Nashville. It's a great city. But like for me, like New Orleans, it's just like there's something, um, just inside the whole thing there. Yeah. That just kind of comes out as this, um, and it's a, the real, a, a real encouragement to, uh, towards self expression, mm-hmm. you know, real encouragement towards, um, to like emotional playing. Right. You know, or, and, and very much like feel over technique. Mm-hmm. Not that those guys can't play with technique. You know, like but some of them don't. <laughs> like you see some street bands, whether it's the brass players or the drummers, and and their technique is not textbook. Right, sounds great, feels great, but like from a technique standpoint, it's like whoa. <laughs> like, I don't, I couldn't even hold the sticks that way. Right, <laughs> right. But yeah, it's the and but you know you hear like if you hear enough cats, so like you know growing up in in Mardi Gras, you know it is it is what it is. But, you know, it was such a big cultural thing, you know, for us during the 70s and the 80s and stuff. It was like, you know, like everybody went all the time. You know, it was like and the jazz fest all the time went to, you know, jazz fest. And so, like, not only did you hear all the bands you played in, but you hear everybody else doing it. And you'd see like, you know, Grambling and like all these like wicked street bands. Yeah. Like the step bands. Right, right. That were just bad to the bone. And you hear like, <laughs> you hear that just over and over and over again. You're, you know, and like in between, you know, bands passing by on the parade, somebody's like playing Professor Longhair on the, the you know, on their boombox mm-hmm. or, you know, you're listening to the meters or, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just like over and over and over again. And before I even really was aware of what I was listening to, I was like kind of feeling, you know, some of that stuff. And, yeah. you know, I like to think that I have that feel and, and that's the thing that I took from it. But it was even before I was aware of like trying to develop myself as a musician. Yeah. Well, the, New Orleans musicians, no matter what genre they happen to be in, I, I feel like there's there's a, a level of commitment to to what they're playing in the moment. And I think New Orleans musicians are, are less likely to like, quote unquote, stretch, you know, or, or reach for shit. And, you know, that's an, that's an aspect in music. That's an aspect, especially in jazz is to just like challenge yourself, go outside of your comfort zone and reach for something that you haven't played before or whatever. But, um, but I feel like New Orleans music is content where it is mm-hmm. and, and doesn't huge emphasis on the groove and like yes. how. You know, there's like, they don't want to shake that bond with the listener. Right. And they, and they don't want to challenge the listener too much either. Right. So I think now when, when you put it that way, I, I feel like you have that kind of commitment in your playing. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Every time I see you play and sing, like, there's, there's, it's like Levon, like we were talking about last time. There's no bullshit. There's no frill. It's, it's, you know, what you know you can do well in the moment. Ah, Ben, thank you. I dig that. In 86, your family moved to Atlanta, mm-hmm. and at, at some point, you made it out to L.A. to study with uh, study at Musicians Institute, right? Mm-hmm. What would, Was that right after you graduated high school? or No, it was a bit after. You know, um, when I went to school, uh, I met a bunch of cool, cool people, you know, and I only did like a year, another year playing trumpet in Atlanta mm-hmm. and switched over to chorus um, in my sophomore year. I had a really brilliant choral director, a woman named Leslie Gillis, and I still think she teaches. Um, she's from, I think she, she was from Shorter, hmm. and um, but 
really was like a badass teacher. And like, so then we started kind of getting into like intervallic singing and like sight singing and uh-huh. working on stuff like that. And um, like a lot of the, the pieces, you know, like they don't, um, I hadn't gotten, I hadn't gotten into any of that stuff uh, playing trumpet yet, but like I already knew, you know, all my key signatures and whatever. And so then when I get into like this intervallic singing with her, it was like a lot easier to, kind of know where we're going but um she was just really great at kind of like breaking it down and getting us going so she would have us you know she would get us in there and you know like play the tonic you know so this is like prep for solo and ensemble mm-hmm. you know and she, she would play tonic chord on the piano and then walk up to the front of the room and she would be like and you'd have to sing the two mm-hmm. you know and then you have to sing the downward four right, you know like right. and she would go through all that and you know, like, and they got it to where, like, you know, 40 of us were nailing that stuff. Wow. And then, uh, you know, we would do, uh, like, the last week before Soul and Ensemble, we were doing, like, Mozart's Requiem. And she would, like, you know, hit the tonic and then walk over the door and turn the lights off. <laughs> Pitch black. <laughs> and then she would, you know, like, and we'd get going. We'd sing that in the dark, yeah. acapella. Wow. You know, it was, and it was a really amazing group to be a part of. So that helped out a lot, like with uh, harmony singing. I had done a lot in church as I was a kid growing up in New Orleans, you know. And it was weird, like the the little like they weren't incidental, but like uh, I can't go without mentioning Gordon Brown, mm-hmm. my choir director at uh, St. Matthew's United Methodist Church in uh, Metairie, Louisiana. Mm. You know, and this guy would do a lot of off Broadway productions, but he would come in and like stage these like summertime musicals, you know. And so like I'm like. 12, 13 years old, like singing the middle harmony parts in the barbershop quartet from the music man, Whoa. you know, like, and doing, you know, like Jesus Christ superstar and bye yeah, bye yeah. birdie and right. stuff like that, you know, with these insane pieces. Yeah. But like, you know, they would just, he would just pull us through it and <laughs> studying with them, like with he and his wife, Dorothy were both insane, like music and voice teachers, uh-huh. you know, and like having them to study with, like just was a huge influence, you yeah. know, like I never, I still don't think I've like kind of figured out all the stuff they taught me. Mm-hmm. So like I carried that all over and into the, the vocal thing. And then, uh, you know, so when I was in high school, I met Jason Lamarca, who was, uh, my age, he's a drummer. And, um, you know, like we had our, we had our high school band and then uh, he was in the, the rival high school band. He's like in the bad boy band. But in the band with him was a guy named Todd Smalley. He's um, I know that name. Yeah, bassist. Yeah, he's yeah. a bassist, and he uh, played with uh, Derek Trucks for a long time. He was in the band with Gian Rico. Right. Right. And uh, and then he was also in. Um, now he plays with JJ Gray mm-hmm. and Mofro, and so like you know he and I and uh, a guitar player named Derek Carvada who's still in town. Like we were in a rock band together, uh, you know, out of high school and just loved it. And you know, and then Jason went off to North Texas and you know started studying there. Mm-hmm. And I was constantly like you know picking his brain, asking him about stuff, annoying the fuck out of him. You know, like Jason, Jason, you know, and, you know, I, uh, and I went on for some private study, uh, with a guy named, uh, Jeff Wilkinson mm-hmm. and he's still here. Uh, and I studied with him and he had some really good methods and that's when I first started like really getting my, uh, rhythm reading together. He yeah. really taught me to, re- uh, start to be able to read. Yeah. Um, and I studied with him for a couple of years. You know, we went through syncopation, mm-hmm. you know, like the, uh, like different jazz variations of syncopation. Right. And, um, 
you know, like he's getting my hands together as well. And then um, maybe, let's see, I, I moved. Uh, that was like, you know, I got out of high school in like 88, 89, you know, 89 and 90. I'm like gigging around with the Wild Onions with Derek and Todd and those guys. Mm -hmm. And we would get in trouble almost as much as we would play. <laughs> you know? But then I was super fun. Yeah. And then um, then uh, around 1990, I was like, okay, so I see these guys. They're like improvising together. At that point, I'm primarily a singer. Uh -huh. I'm playing some guitar and stuff. And, and I'm, you know, we would like, you know, eat acid and have these like trip out like jam sessions right. all night long you know and uh but you and jamming was a huge thing like getting together and just playing with no agenda or anything and right you know we we're kind of i was kind of like wow these guys are really communicating and i love that and i want an instrument i really feel like i need to master an instrument to be able to to communicate with these guys you know in that way and so i really decided to get serious about playing the drums mm -hmm. and so i started taking lessons with jeff i got my first real kit and just kind of like started really, really getting on it. So you didn't get serious about playing drums until like after high school? Yeah, I was about 20. Wow. Okay. So, But I've been playing since, you know, for... I got my first kit when I was like 13 or 14. Right. So but been, it was just kind of like dabbling, like you were doing the singing thing that was, you know... Dabbling like hours and hours playing along with records. Well, that's more than dabbling. Okay. You know, like <laughs> it's kind of like this manic thing. So, okay, maybe a little bit of context. So when I was... You know, like four or five, I, I was aware that my dad had cancer. He mm -hmm. came home from the hospital with his first operation. And, um, you know, and he really stuck it out for a long period of time, you know, but like it was kind of a long, slow grind. Yeah. You know, he finally passed in 83. Mm -hmm. So this is. So you were 13. Wow. Yeah, almost, you know, almost 10 years of that. Wow. And, you know, so it left me with a lot of time to myself, mm -hmm. you know, because my mom needed to take care of him, you know, and they just didn't have enough RAM, you know, they were dealing with that. Yeah. You know, so and then after that, my mom was just trying to keep the boat afloat, mm -hmm. you know, so it was like after that, I had a lot of extra time. So like I would, you know, I wasn't a terribly good student uh, and partially because I was really bored, yeah. you know, uh, so I would come home and just like put on records and play records. And then after a while, I was like, skip school and play records, you know, and just you know, <laughs> play along and, and just, you know, like and like I probably the. You know, it's like Zeppelin and Foreigner, but then later on it was like um, Gap Band Gold, like yeah. really seminal, just like in terms of like locking in the feel, right? You know that right, right. that sort of stuff, and uh, tons of other records. Lots of Rush. I loved Rush. I remember my sister turned us on to Permanent Waves, and that was the thing that made Greg and I want to play rock music when we were little, little. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you know did that a lot, and then so you know after I got uh, that. My, you know, I started taking drums seriously and taking lessons with Jeff and, you know, I'd just be living at my mom's house, working at Pizza Hut, mm -hmm. you know, and she'd, you know, she'd go to work and I'd get up and, you know, uh, and practice and then go to Pizza Hut and yeah. practice on my practice pad in between runs and, you know, and then just like practice. And then, you know, we, all our houses that when we first moved out into little rental houses in the neighborhood, we'd set up jam rooms in the basement, yeah. always in bands. So my brother quit high school in like 86 or 87, like between sophomore and junior year to go on the road with a band, uh -huh. you know? And then like, I kind of did the same thing a little bit into my senior year. So we were always just kind of like, we knew this, what we were going to do. My mom was just like, threw her hands up. <laughs> just like, whatever. Fine. Be happy. <laughs> yeah, do, do your thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we did all that. And, um, 
after doing that for a couple of years and Jason had gone off to school and everybody kind of like, you know, went off and did their own thing. And I really didn't have uh, prospects or any place to go. So I moved to Alexandria, Virginia or uh, Ashburn, Virginia with my mom. Uh, in like 1991, you know, just for a little bit, maybe a year. And during that time, uh, my uh, my dad's mom passed away. And, you know, she had this, you know, like an inheritance for us. And it was like, okay, you wait till you're 21 or you can use it to go to college right now. And I was mm-hmm. like, cool, I'm going to go to school for music. Yeah. You know, and I was looking at a bunch of schools and I, uh, and I was like, MI seems glamorous and really far away. <laughs> you know, so let's go out there. It is both those things. You know, so <laughs> that's what I did. And I went to MI and like just happened to be there. At this time, when the the staff was probably at its peak, yeah, it was just insane, you yeah, know, yeah. like way beyond me, and just like had a big old time in L.A. for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so I I knew um, I know Ralph Humphrey a little bit. I I took a lesson or two with him when I was in L.A. Um, and saw him play a bunch. And talk about an educator, man. Uh, Wayne Saltzman. Uh, um, a former guest on our show is a Austin drummer put up a, a Facebook post about like, who are the, who are the greatest drum teachers of their generations? And, uh, I, I immediately thought of, uh, Joe Morello and John Von Olin and Peter Erskine. Cause mm-hmm. those are guys that frequently come up on the podcast. But, um, I saw that in your bio that you had studied with Humphrey and I was like, man, Ralph Humphrey and Joe Porcaro are names that n- deserve to be on that list. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In particular, like Joe Poe had his uh, his own method yeah. in a book, right. which was great. It was part of the curriculum too. And they wrote the curriculum together. But man, that year was like, it was really wild because it was like a bunch of shit happened in LA that year. You know, so it was what like... What year was that? 92. 92. So, so that was like Rodney King... The, the riots, we went through that. Right. And then, um, you know, six months into my tenure at that school, Jeff Picaro died. Oh, right. You know, and we didn't see Joe for months and months. Oh, and man. he was just a shell of his former self for a while. Yeah. You know, like uh, it just, it broke his heart. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so he always had subs for his classes and stuff. But some of those guys are like, um, I can't think of the guy's name now. God, what's me who names it today? I'm usually total recall. Um, you know, I keep up with some of my old instructors who were just like subs back then. Mm-hmm. And they were just like total beasts. Right. Now, you know, just right. really, really can play. So, you know, like, um, you know, Casey Sherrell was on staff. Don Perry was, you know, like, I mean, you know, you go and they would do these uh, LPWs, live playing workshops. So you had like you could sign up for all these electives and you would do these live playing workshops. And every week you would have to learn the song and you come to the LPW and you practice playing it live mm-hmm. with a group of kids. You right. know? And so, um, like the classic rock LPW was like Don Perry and Jack Bruce, wow. you know, and yeah, like, yeah. uh, Steve Dudas, the guy was, an, you know, so just like these huge heavyweights yeah. or, you know, you would go in and it like maybe Steve Bailey on bass, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, you'd be in the funk LPW and it's like, uh, um, was Cat Gray was Prince's keyboard player? Yeah, you know, was the MD, and then uh, uh, what's his uh, Takumi Mazawa? He was Sonny's predecessor in Earth, Wind, and Fire. 
on drunk. Yeah. You know, and it was just like, and I like, I got in like a shouting match with that guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was just like, I was such a, like such a punk ass kid. <laughs> you know, it was like Efren Toro would just be like, you know, busting my balls. For, you know, just, like, not doing homework and coming to class high and, you know, the whole nine. I was just like, dude, we're in L.A. <laughs> you know, so, like, I definitely wasn't a good student or, like, a good example. And still they managed to just, like, you know, pound some stuff into me. Right. You know, right. the jazz, my, like, like you have your core classes. Mm-hmm. And my jazz core class was with... Chuck Flores mm-hmm. and uh, you know like one day I find myself oh shit I'm trading fours in here with Bob Manguson you know and I'm just like the fuck you know <laughs> and, and I felt that you know like and you probably could attest you know like the most nerve wracking thing about doing that was not playing with Bob Manguson but it was like playing in front of 75 drummers yeah yeah <laughs> For and, sure. Like, and these guys, you know, the, one of the guys that was the best kid in our class is still there. He's a teacher named Andy Megna. Uh-huh. You know, I think he marched with the Blue Devils. Uh-huh. His chops were crazy. And I remember one day, um, Efren was like, Efren Toro, our Latin percussion teacher. Look that guy up. Holy shit. <laughs> and, um, you know, and he would like, he was one of those like uh, crusty dudes, you know, like the percussion players. And they like, they point at you and the finger is all like. Like an S-curve. Broke to shit. (laughs) Like, fingers all mangled and stuff. And he was like, you know, he's like, who's got chops in here? And everybody points at Andy. (laughs) You know, and he's like, okay, fine. And he's like, play double paradiddles, you know. And Andy, like, you know, very impressive double paradiddles. You know, and so Efren gets up there. And he was playing the Jopo sticks. I don't know if you ever saw those diamond tips that Jopo had for a minute. Yeah. They were like nylon tips with yeah. like diamond tip. It, they were really wild. And, you know, and he was just like, shh, and just, just blew everybody's mind. He was yeah. like, okay, so I don't want to hear no more shit about chops. You know, and he would just like set it up like from day one. Right. You know, right. just jaw dropping. Oh, my God. So uh, how long were you in L.A. total? Probably about is a one-year program. So we were probably there for about 18 months. Yeah, they wanted you to practice like 20 hours a day. I know, man. You know, yeah. it was insane. And, yeah. you know, we were. Like, we were practicing. Like, I practiced so much. And I wasn't even coming close to what the other kids were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, but, like, I was in there, you know, I don't know, five, six hours a day. And, you know, like, I didn't, uh, I wasn't as much of a go-getter, obviously, as some of the other kids. So, like, I got shit practice spots you know we would share rooms right you know you gotta so, sign up for them mm-hmm. and yeah yeah you know it was like a couple of japanese kids and a couple of italian kids you know those guys were like johnny on the spot i know so I man. Get the, like 11 p.m to 3 a.m slot you know and so i'm out there on hollywood boulevard you know in the middle of the night yeah. and practicing as much as i could and then my good friend mike mulholland i don't know if you've met him no he's in town here too and he had just uh but, like, he went to Lasseter. Like, he, we knew each other from here in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And so he had just finished going to Grove, just finished his education at Grove, uh, which is, like, another musical right there in L.A., in Van Nuys. And so uh, we, like, hooked up and just, would like, shed and just, you know, shed buddies and hang out and stuff. And so he and I would, like, get our shit and pack it into the car and drive up to Zuma Beach. It's like an hour from the yeah. house, you know, from Hollywood. And drive up, you know, they have those scenic, scenic overlooks yeah. on Canaan Road. And so we would set our shit up 
on Canaan Road and practice for like two or three hours, and make it back into the city for ten, and then I'd you know do a day of classes. He would work and he'd come over, and then like after that, you know, go to band rehearsal till about midnight, and then you know go to bed, get up, do it all over again for like two or three weeks. He was really helping me get through finals and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's one of the things about a program like like MI as opposed to uh, a university, you know, because if if you choose to make it so, it can be. 20 hours a day, just intensive drum set. Whereas at most universities, you know, you got to take your core classes. You probably got to do some orchestral stuff. And, and, you know, there, there aren't many, you know, colleges or universities where you can just focus on drum set all the time. Yeah. Um, so, I made a conscious decision to focus on, like, at that point I was like, wow, I really got to pare this down. So I was like, okay, American drum styles, you know, mm-hmm. it was like, you know, blues and funk, R&B, pop, rock, yeah. you know, and uh, I was always fascinated with the Latin stuff. And, you know, I had to learn beats for for school uh-huh. and swing, too. But, you know, but like I realized that I wasn't going to be able to get it all. Right. So right. I focused on the stuff that I could already play decently well and tried to get it a little bit better. Hmm. But, um, you know, that, I, and that you, you mentioned something like that earlier in the interview about just kind of recognizing you know, what, what you're made of. We've talked about this on the podcast before, like recognizing what your strengths are and playing to those strengths. Um, and as a 21 year old, you know, I, I certainly didn't realize, I certainly wasn't able to make that kind of distinction. You know, I think I did it out of laziness. Honestly. <laughs> I mean, just, <laughs> well, man, I mean, it, I mean, you, you could think of it as, as lazy, but, um, Anybody that knew me back then right. would agree. <laughs> right, right. But, I mean, it, it, it has served you because since since then you've been, been honing these things that you know that you're good at, that you know you're interested in, um, and that you know are your strengths. So they're just going to become stronger and stronger strengths. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, there's... You know, every every student is told you got to be well rounded. You got to be able to play any style and 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 all that. But um, uh, my teacher in Kansas City, Doug Allwater, I've had him on the podcast. He said you're you're not going to get really good at any style that you don't love. Like wise words. It's yeah. You know, I think that's really smart. Yeah, you can become competent. You can become proficient, but. Um, if That's you're gonna, why Justin Chisarek is so good at jazz. Like he lives and breathes that yeah. stuff. You know, and same with like um, Chris Burroughs. Yeah, come on, like you know, and they love the styles that they're playing. Mm-hmm. You know, and Chris it turned me on. To, like I remember, I was having a beer with Chris, and Justin came and sit in at the the jam. This was back when it used to be at Twain's. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, man, look this kid. Like he lives and breathes this shit. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was like, really, he does. And like it's just. It shows. Yeah. It really shows. Yeah. So I was into that stuff. You know, I really wish I had done more with it, you know. Um, but, you know, like, you know, we came up, like, in a different time. It's, like, a, an interesting thing when we're trying to, like, you know, like, who our heroes were. So, like, they were, and they were kind of known for being really, to a certain degree, being very versatile. You know, so, like, you're Steve Gadd, very yeah. versatile. Vinnie Cagliuta, very versatile. And uh, or Omar, you know, versatile. Mm-hmm. And I know that they get Jeff Porcaro versatile, yeah, yeah. right? And to, to a certain degree, it's like, okay, so now I see that really they were kind of getting called for the things that they did well. Mm-hmm. But at the time, you know, like everybody was, you know, you know, it was thought it, the we wanted to be those guys, mm-hmm. and so you tried to be like to play as much stuff as they did in right. different ways that they did, you know. But now it's like. 
you almost like it was used to be death to be pigeonholed, but now it's like that's the only way you get work. Yeah, you know, yeah. you have to be considered a specialist, right? I, and I noticed that about LA. Um, I think you know my my time in Kansas City and and my time in Atlanta. Those those towns aren't so saturated that you can't. Um, do a few different kinds of things if you want to. If you want to play some jazz, if you want to play some funk, like, you know, you'll have opportunities to to vary it up. But in a town like LA, if you, you know, if you want to do, you know, two or three different things, for each one of them, you're going to have to get in line behind like five guys who only do that one thing. And they do it so crazy well. Yeah. You know, it's like watching guys like Joey Heredia yeah. do a pickup gig, you know. And it's like, like, that's where the pickup gigs. And that was a big reason why I left L.A. I was like, okay, so Casey Shirell is having a hard time putting together money to buy a house. And I'm like, what chance do I really have? And seeing what happened, you know, even from a huge distance, seeing what happened in the industry in the vacuum when Jeff died. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's just like, okay, who's standing in line for Jeff's gigs? You know, like... John Robinson, right? You know, it's like who the you know like like there really is no shot, you right? Know? It's like it, it seemed really daunting, and right. it, was, it was much easier to kind of like pursue a band situation, right? Right, and I mean it goes it goes back to the kind of the path of least resistance thing, like play to your strengths. On the one hand, it, it seems lazy, maybe it feels a little bit lazy, but if you're not interested in banging your head against a wall to prove something, mm-hmm. you know why why do it? Um, if you're getting if you're getting calls for one style of music or one particular band or or whatever, why second guess it? You know, I've I've had times in my career where I was doing, um, you know, a bunch of one kind of thing, and and all of my focus and energy was like, how can I do other stuff too? And and a friend of mine uh, was was just like, don't worry about the other shit. Like you're you're getting all this stuff right now. Put your energy into that. Maybe more of that will come. Right. Um, you know. So it doesn't sound like you stayed in uh, L.A. too long after you done no, the school. We moved to Portland after that. Man, and you've been around. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. You know, it was like we did Portland for a couple of years, did the original band thing in Portland for a couple of years, and then moved back to Atlanta. We started an original band there. Such an interesting, weird thing. You know, so, um, you know, I lived in this apartment complex in L.A., um, and it was right at the foot of... Uh, you know, um, where the Griffiths Observatory is. You mm-hmm. know, it was like a block off of Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I'd go out and there's like a little strip of turf in the front. I'd go walk my dog there in the front. And there was a cat that I met there. Um, you know, his puppy liked my dog and we would just chat it up. And it turns out he's a recording engineer. And so he and I get friendly and stuff and we're just hanging out. Uh, and he says, you know, I got this buddy of mine that's looking for, you know, a rhythm section for his band. And uh, and you and your brother would be great. So we put the you know we get in this band. It turns out the the singer is a movie star, a guy named Billy Worth. Hmm. So did you ever see the Lost Boys? I don't think so. Uh, and so this was like a great '80s hit. Right. Uh, I think it had both Corys in it, <laughs> Corey Haim and Corey Feldman. <laughs> and. Um, and so it was, and uh, Kiefer Sutherland was the main bad guy. Oh my god! And so he ran uh, a tribe of vampires. <laughs> okay. Right. And so one. This of, is ringing a bell. I, yeah. One of the vampires um, 
was a uh, was he didn't have very many speaking lines. So it was a guy named Billy Worth, and then he also uh, was in a movie called Red Shoe Diaries. Like, uh, um, trying to think, there was a director that was kind of hot that did Red Shoe Diaries and stuff. Was like you know into Billy at the time, and so mm-hmm. he was getting a lot of work. Anyway, so like Billy, sweet guy, super charmed life, and um, he needed a band. So uh, and he already had a couple of guitar players. Uh, a guy named uh, uh, JJ and another guy named uh, I think Rich Constantino, Steve Constantino. That's Steve Constantino. So you know we, uh, me and Greg joined this band and uh, we had some fun. You know we were like we, some good stuff and there was definitely a, a big musical chemistry between JJ and me and my brother. So we uh, put the thing together and you know like we do some gigs and stuff and it was just this like. Billy's life was crazy, you know. It was just mm-hmm. like you go to these parties that don't start until midnight, like downtown LA, right? You know, and as you're going in now, you know Billy, you know, of course he's like he rolls out of bed wearing the same shit he's worn for two three days, and you know just looking awesome, <laughs> and uh, you know like literally like all the the playmates from that last year are like rolling up on him at this party. You know, and you're like, oh, I recognize this one. Oh, I recognize. Right. And you're just like, what's happening? This is insane. <laughs> we do, you know, like, and so we played with Billy for like eight or ten months, and you know, it was like clear that he just couldn't really keep it together enough. Like, it wasn't a big enough focus for him. Mm-hmm. You know, and he had other things pulling his attention. Also, Randy um, knew this cat. Okay, so you remember Tone Loke's first hit. What was wild that? thing? Okay, yeah, yeah, right. And so that was produced by um, I can't think of it. Here are the names again. It was Delicious Vinyl Records, and um, uh, and the the two guys that were the producers of that, um, one of them was a friend and had a, a had a house in Echo Park, mm-hmm. and. I can't remember how we all started going over there, but um, God, Echo Park was probably a war zone at that time, wasn't it? It wasn't too bad. I mean, yeah. I don't remember having anything sketchy. I, you know, I don't know. I was a kid. You right. know, I remember like we had courier jobs. I like would sleep in my car in Compton, you know. But also, I had a gun. Right. Like I would, you know, like I carried a gun wherever I went back mm-hmm. then. So just a super super dumbass. <laughs> We take that as red, and uh, um, but so you know this was Buster Keaton's old mansion, Matt Dyke and Matthew Ross. So it was Matt Dyke's house, and um, we're and uh, Randy was friends with Matt and his girlfriend Jade, and they lived in Buster Keaton's old mansion in uh, in Echo Park, right? So we would go to his place, and in his basement was. This crazy old, I think it was a Trident board that like Joni Mitchell had recorded Court and Spark on this board. Jesus. You know, and like, and so, but it was kind of fallen into disuse. And <clears throat> they were, um, they had hired Randy to come in and just like refurb it and bring it back up to speed, you mm-hmm. know. And, and a lot of it's just like with those old boards that would get crusty like that, it's just running the faders back and forth and mm-hmm. turning knobs a lot until it stops staticking and so but it was also across the courtyard there was another big empty room that it was wired into huh. so and they said you know like they agreed to let us uh, record stuff in there for free 
if we would help Jade like clean the grounds up, huh. get all the, you know, so we're like out there pulling up weeds and hacking shit up <laughs> and working hard. And then we go in there and record demos and stuff. And that's where we, we did uh, the first demos of this band uh, after we left Billy and Zed. So me and JJ and Greg. And then um, we brought on my friend Mike Mulholland, I had mentioned before. Mm-hmm. He was uh, an also drum. So it was like two drum sets. Oh, wow. But he would play percussion too because he's a good percussionist. So it was kind of like almost like a Doobie Brothers situation. Right. And then uh, we had a keyboard player, a guy named Andrew Deller. And so we did our first demos there at that house. And um, just crazy. You know, it was like Jade was like, she was beautiful and <laughs> was like this torch singer. Oh, you know? my God. And so she would do like these really like sultry like swing gigs. I yeah. remember doing this one like, you know, just like a one-off thing at some bar on in, in L.A., and I'm sitting here like I had picked up a couple of drums from their house that was just lying around. And, you know, so I'm in there stirring the soup, you know, and she's like doing a thing. And then she's like, come on up here. And the guy comes up on the stage and is like, Harry Dean Stanton gets Holy up. Shit. And, and like, and he's just like, just barely ambulatory. Right. You know, and he gets up on the stage and like handles himself. On the harmonica. Whoa. Just nailing. I mean, it was really cool. Oh, my God. I was just like, wow, man, I wouldn't even be able to stand. Yeah. And, you know, it was, you know, it was great, you know. So, and then, like, we're at this rehearsal with Billy's band, you know, and it would be like, oh, here comes Uma Thurman comes into rehearsal. You know, I'm just like, what in the world is going on? Yeah. It was just crazy stuff. Yeah, living the L.A. life, man. That's... Yeah, it was wild. <laughs> After a while, you just kind of like, you know, okay, that was Adam Hill, no problem. <laughs> so, you know, and that we took that band. JJ's brother had a house in Portland, you know, and it was like the price of living, you know, cost of living in LA was becoming untenable. Yeah. You know, we were running out of money and we we're like, well, let's go live in Portland. It's cheap. We'll just all pile into one house and, and see what we can do up there because we were really into all the stuff that was happening from that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like that was. Year around uh, around the year that like Pearl Jam and Nirvana was breaking, yeah, and, yeah. You know, so it was a big scene happening from up there. So we we move up to Portland, and you know, it was interesting because it was like people from L.A. were not that welcome in Portland because apparently there were a lot of us. Yeah, you know, it was like this mass exodus from L.A. up north to kind of t- tap into that scene. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was just like we were just another band of guys, but. We kind of did that thing for a minute and made a record up there, and it was really fun, you know, like old school record tape machines, and yeah, you know, did some did some shows, and you know, before we left, before I left Atlanta, I had become a big fan of uh, the Aquarium Rescue Unit. Oh yeah, you know, and met, you know, and it was like this is '89 or '90. I'd seen him play a couple of times, and Derek, the guitar player from one of the bands I was in, was taking lessons with Jimmy, mm. so they, he introduced me. I swear I met Jimmy like once or twice, you know, and just a handshake and how you doing? Yeah. And then we're in this club in Portland at the Satyricon and I knew they were coming. So we went to see him play and I'm in the bathroom and, and then Jimmy Herring walks in the bathroom Jesus. and he's like, Hey, what's up? You know, like he remembered my name. Yeah. Just the nicest guy. And Sype remembered me too. Mm-hmm. You know, they were just so sweet. I got to get Sype on the show, man. You do. Especially after this tour they're doing. The, oh, with, my God. Ugh. My friend weaseled his way onto part of the tour as the bus driver. <laughs> and uh, so, and he was just like, you know, his head was falling off. It was. <laughs> 
you know, like with Gary Husband. Yeah. It's like, okay. <laughs> oh my God, it's insane. So we did the Portland thing for a minute, and then after we were banging our heads against the wall in Portland and stuff for a while, um, we were like, okay, well, three out of five, we just, you know, we're like, we don't know anybody, nobody knows us, and it's really hard to kind of break in over here, so we're thinking, okay, well, three out of five of this band are from Atlanta. Maybe we know, you know, we can get back to Atlanta and build up some stuff there. Mm -hmm. And so we moved back to Atlanta. That's probably 94, Mm -hmm. you know, and the band probably lasted another three years after that. Yeah. You know, and JJ went on to play with um, Butch Walker and Marvelous Three a lot. And my brother did some work with Butch as well. Like he produced the last studio record that we made, Mm -hmm. you know, in his dad's garage in Clarksville. (laughs) You know, like this is right when Butch was kind of getting his... Is well, I don't know if he was getting his start. Like he'd already done South Gang, and he'd already done um, the band he was in at the time was Floyd's Funk Revival, you know. So it was yeah. like uh, had some really you know amazing players in that. We did a tour with them, and yeah. so we did all that mess, and you know just kind of stayed here and all went our separate ways. And JJ is out, and he plays with Battle Me and some other like West Coast bands um, is touring out there and mm-hmm. um, Andy is up like way up in New York State someplace and Mike and Greg and I are all still here the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was your seven year tenure as an editor at Drumhead Magazine oh yeah I'm still a copy editor there really not an editor okay like, yeah like I just like fix misspellings and I stuff, gotcha you know trying okay. to like grammar stuff and but copy editor yeah right, copy I, I misunderstood editor. yeah yeah so uh-huh. um, you know I was like bumming around uh, do you know Karen Hunt uh uh-uh. uh so uh, she's uh, been big in PAS Georgia forever okay you know um, and I think she might still be doing this thing sticks with chicks chicks with sticks mm-hmm. and uh, which is an all female percussionist group and when I first came back to Georgia in 94, um, they had PASIC here. Oh, cool. In Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. And so um, Jeff Wilkinson, my old drum teacher, heard that I was in town and, uh, and invited me to come and just, like, help out. So, I, you know, we got to set up the kits, like, bring the kits from the, uh, down from the Paramart up to the clinics. So I got to set up, you know, Omar Hakim's kit and Bob Moses' kit yeah, yeah. and uh, Vinny Kaliuta's kit and... Got to see all these guys play on that thing. So that's where I met Karen, and we just kind of stayed in touch over the years. And so one day I'm bumming around Guitar Center, and I was uh, and I run into her, and we're just, you know, catching up and stuff. And I had been reading Drumhead, you know, like, so, like, Jonathan Mover was a fan from when he was with Satriani. Mm-hmm. You know, and I remember, like, when they came to town, you know, they used to do simulcasts on the radio. Whoa. You know, so like that, that was the, the thing. It was like, you know, they would play at the cock club and they would broadcast it on 96 Rock. Right. You know, and so, uh, you know, taped it and I would just listen to, you know, his solo in Ice Nine, which is a little like, I don't know, eight bar solo, really, mm-hmm. but just over and over, just listen to the, the whole thing. And we used to play a couple of those songs in cover bands that I was in and just really thought the world of them. And so uh, I heard that he was doing a magazine and the first couple of issues, I was just like, if you guys haven't read Drumhead, it's the best music mag out there. He's the best music journalist alive today. Mm. He's insane. And, you know, so I was, like, really, really into it. And he had done these great face-to-face things with, like, um, the fa- the old face-to-face with 
Rick Murata uh-huh. or the old face to face with the first one with Andy Newmark. Like some of the stuff that wow. they talk about, you'd never hear those guys talk about that shit with anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, about like chasing Elvis Costello around the parking lot of the Palms, trying to beat his ass because <laughs> he's such a jerk. You know, or like how Andy Newmark uh um like got on the wrong side of uh Who's that cat that was the manager of James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt and all those guys? Oh, or Peter Asher. Okay, you know, or something. I think, but like, you know, it was like how he got the gig with Peter Gabriel and right. you know all those things. Or, no, that's Rick Morata again. You know, but like, you know, they talk about money. They talk about all this. I mean, it's great. So I'm telling her I love this magazine, and she's like, you know, it's just him. You know, it's like. And I was like, well, I, you know, I wish I could help out in some way. And she's like, well, you should just write them. You know, maybe, maybe they could find some way for you to help out. And I was like, okay, cool. So at that time, uh, we would take a yearly vacation to upstate New York with my wife's family. Mm-hmm. And so um, I sent them an email before one of those vacations in the summer and get their managing editor, uh, Heather Smith at the time. You know, and I'm like... Hey, you know, I just want to help out gratis, you know, and they're like, okay, cool. Well, um, come in and meet and we'll just talk and see if there's a way to do it, you know? And so, uh, I go to meet them at the end of this trip and Heather's not there and it's just mover and skyline studios in Manhattan. And I'm like, Oh, and so like, we sit down in the control room at skyline and I just get to talk with Jonathan mover for a couple hours. <laughs> and it was just like, wow. <laughs> you know, I was a little bit starstruck and, yeah. You know, and so, like, I just, at that point, I just started doing some copy editing for him, and I've been doing it ever since. Wow. Wow. So, my, one of my side rackets are, uh, is is writing. I write bios for people. I've written articles. I've done written interviews. Um, and I, I try to, you know, whenever I have the opportunity, I try to impress on people the importance of just being able to express yourself effectively in written form. Um, because I, I think it's, it's being lost and people's careers are suffering because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so wh- what is in, in your mind, like what is the confluence of, of, of writing and music and what role has it, has it played in your life? I think there's a lot of the same rules apply, mm-hmm. you know, uh, less is more, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, um, clear and deliberate statements. Yeah. Think before you speak. Uh huh. You know, stuff like that. You know, being a, um, as being a, like a teacher, a music teacher, but also being a yoga teacher, like there's a huge, there's a big threshold there where it's like, you're, you know, you're not communicating clearly. You're not, you know, and so a lot of people, um, you know, you start to learn like people have thresholds for how well they can understand what they're hearing, Uh you know, so if you can pare it down and, I think I think yoga schools should teach dialogue, Mm. like being able to speak clearly. Yeah. You know, and after a while, I started making it a little bit of a hobby uh, to occasionally because I don't say that I do this all the time. But like when needed, be very succinct. Yeah. You know, and very clear. Um, And I think, you know, I've always been a big reader. Mm -hmm. I read read a lot. And so you just kind of you, you learn you know, like what good grammar looks like. Right. You know, like right. They're writers. And it, it's not just about good grammar. It's about, it's about, um, you know, turns of phrase or, or poeticism or, um, you know, I just, uh, I think there are so many ways that you can do yourself a favor as a musician by being able to write about yourself, about your band, uh, just even in the, in the, you know, context of sending an email to yeah. someone, um, 
And so I, that's so hard. It is. It is. Because, you know, like, where is your unworthiness really going to rear its head is when you really start to try and, like, tell people what you're doing and who you are. <laughs> right. You know, and it's like, you know, people think that they've got to build themselves up to a certain degree or, mm-hmm. or break themselves down, mm-hmm. you know, and then you just kind of like, or, you know, like you end up including things that are just not relevant to the conversation. Right. You know, like not really imagining um, what what's going on with the listener or yep. the reader, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, what, what is this person, you know, what do they want? What are, or like, what is their day like? You know, what do they have time for? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, my wife has helped me out a great deal in, in this regard. And she's really tightened up my writing as far as, um, a, just making it shorter. I was, you know, just long winded as fuck. Um, but you know, really, really knowing your audience, um, who is looking at your website, who is reading this email? Um, you know, and you know, one of, one of her mantras is it, it, it doesn't matter what you say to a person if you don't say it in a way and at a time that they can hear you and understand you and receive that information. Um, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've like read an email from musicians or looked at a musician's website or looked at a Facebook post. And, you know, I, I may know that person. I may not, but, uh, like their, their inability to just write effectively, (laughs) right. Uh, uh, just get the, like communicate the facts that you're trying to communicate. It's Mm -hmm. like, you want to, you know, like I think they they they're so nervous about it that they want to, you know, like they'll just, instead of being communicative, they're, they'll be snarky or they'll really try to be witty. Or, right. You know, and it's just like, okay, if you're not good at writing, then don't, you know, it's like, if you're not good at skateboarding, don't go do a half pipe. Right. You know, it's like, just get the facts out, get the five W's or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. And just mm-hmm. make it happen. You know, they teach that in junior high. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, and you get your, you know, your, composition classes in junior high all the things you need to know are there yeah and then just practice yeah and i think a lot of uh, a mistake that a lot of drummers or musicians but i think especially drummers make is that they um they they write their bio uh as if it's being read by a bunch of other drummers when in most cases it's it's not um, at least the people like the people reading your bio who matter, who have the power to hire you, who almost have, never drummers, right? Yeah. Never drummers. And, you know, they even, they even take pictures. They even take promo shots that are designed to like, to, to give drummers drum boners. Like I realized when we did a photo shoot for my website in LA, this was like seven years ago. And I had all these ideas for, um, you know, how I wanted to set stuff up and what I wanted to be holding and different, different angles and different shots or whatever. And my, my wife just like shot them all down. She was like, that's dumb. That's douchey. You can't see your face. What is this? And I, I realized that all of my ideas were just straight out of modern drummer ads. Right. All of my ideas were designed to sell drums and cymbals, mm-hmm. not designed to sell me. Right. You know? And I think the same the same is true with writing. That you know, drummers write from a very drummy perspective, but people want to hear your story. People want to hear why you love drumming. Why do you love music? Mm-hmm. You know, why do you love the kind of music? They that need you to love? get a sense of what it's going to be like to play with you. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it's it's another thing that my wife says when when you get done talking with someone, they don't remember what you said. They remember how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the same is true with, with musicians. Like I'm, I'm not going to remember every note you played, but I'm going to remember what it felt like to play with you and right. what it felt like to hang with you on the bus. And, um, right. did I feel like you, you know, like, did I feel like I could, I could easily rely on you to have done your job, mm-hmm. you know, or, and to go like roll with the punches a little bit mm-hmm. and not be a drama queen. Are you going to help people out? You know, and like, especially if you're a band leader, like you're really looking, you're reading between the lines for that shit. Yeah. You know, you're trying to figure out, okay, is this guy going to play well with others? You know, is he going to be a pain in the ass? Is mm-hmm. he, you know, like really that's what I'm like, I look for when I'm reading bios of people that I want to hire as a mm-hmm. band leader. I'm just like, you know, is this guy going to play with the other kids well? Right. You know, and I've got, you know, like an eight-piece band. So, like, if I have somebody that is not going to fit in, that just doesn't work. Right, right. And to me, somebody's bio and the way they write can can tell you whether or not, A, they know who they are and whether or not they're comfortable with it. You know? Um, it, I'm it, terrible at that. Even having said all this, it's <laughs> like, you should, my website's terrible. Uh, no, it's good. I, I've looked at it. Um, <laughs> it's but, super out of date. <laughs> I mean, my CV, I might have updated it recently, but, you know, it's just like, even that, um, like, redoing my CV for, like, some of the, you know, so my wife's a choreographer and a modern dancer. Mm-hmm. And so I've done some, like, sound design and composition for many of her pieces. Yeah. You know, so, but, like, it, so they have to put a resume and a CV in to the, the grant apps, mm-hmm. you know, so like, and like paring that down to just the facts, ma'am. Right. You know, like getting that stuff down is like, it's huge. It's really tough. And like, you know, to put it all in there. Right. And, you know, as, as much of a God as Ralph Humphrey is to us, a person reading a grant for a dance thing doesn't know or give a shit who Ralph Humphrey is. You got to find something else about yourself that they're going to care about. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, well, cool, man. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad. I'm so glad we got to do round two. Me too, and I really appreciate you having me on, man. It's really awesome. Absolutely, man. Thanks again to Ganesh for making a second trip over to my place to record part two. I'm really glad we got a chance to dig into the stuff we just didn't get around to the first time. I think it was well worth it, and I hope you dug it. Once again, please donate to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash working drummer. We'd really appreciate your support. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Matt Kraus is back with you next week for the last episode of 2017, and we look forward to continuing onward and upward in 2018. Thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.